Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. As we gather today, we're going to be concluding a series that we've been in all month, a series that we've called The Coming of the King, the King of Kings who came into the world when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And we've looked at this from the Gospel of Matthew. We've seen his genealogy and the providence of God and the grace of God that was demonstrated through the genealogy of Jesus. And we saw um, how Jesus came to reside within Mary's womb and in the awesome things that we see there about God's power and providence, how the eternal one comes into time, not as a new creation, but as stepping into time in order to communicate himself to us. And then we saw last Sunday, we we saw about the, the wise men who came from Babylon and Persia, outsiders who became insiders, invited by God to come before the throne of grace. And so we've looked at the coming of the king over the last number of weeks. And today, we're going to conclude this series by looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. But before we do that, I want to just uh, reflect a little with you about this, this Christmas time, and specifically the location where the Christmas story takes place. Um, anybody under the age of 10 who can tell me where Jesus was born? Where was he born? Anybody? I see a hand. Where was he born? He was born in a manger. Very good. Do you remember the town where he was? Anybody else? All the way back there. You guys shout it out for me. Bethlehem. I heard it. Yeah, he was born in Bethlehem. So Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem. Now here's something that's, that's great to know. Bethlehem is a real place. It's not just a made-up location like something from a fairy tale, but it's an actual city because Jesus was actually born. And the city of Bethlehem resides in the country of Israel. And just a couple of years ago, or a year and a half ago, I got a, had a chance to go to Israel on a trip. And I got to go and visit the town of Bethlehem. Now, it, it's pretty exciting to think about going and visiting the ultimate Christmas city, isn't it? Now, I want you just to think for a moment, what would you imagine the ultimate Christmas city to look like? Okay, just real quick, everybody, I don't care how old you are, think in your head, what does the ultimate Christmas city look like? Now, as you're thinking about that, maybe some thoughts pop into your head that might be closer to some of the cities in the United States that are known as a Christmas city. Places like Santa Claus, Indiana. Anybody ever been to Santa Claus, Indiana? A few people have been to Santa Claus, Indiana. Maybe you're thinking of a location that looks something like that. Or maybe it's not Santa Claus, Indiana. Maybe it's North Pole, Alaska. Any Air Force families ever go to North Pole, Alaska? Um, nobody, okay? We've got to make a pilgrimage, friends. We've got to go there. Maybe you're thinking that, you know, snow cover and giant Santa Claus, everything in, in red and white. Um, or maybe you're thinking about someplace a little closer to home, like Knoll, Missouri. Um, anybody ever been to Knoll, Missouri? The Christmas city in southwest Missouri, um, where you can get a stamp on your letters no matter when you send them through that post office that talk about it coming through the Christmas city. But you might have things that conjure into your mind that look like one of these places. And, and all, honestly, when, you, when I thought about Bethlehem, I thought of a place that looked something like this. You may have that image pop into your mind. I mean, this is the picture that we have of the city of Bethlehem. But here's what's interesting. When I actually went to the town of Bethlehem, what I found was not a town that looks like that. 
As a matter of fact, I found a place that didn't look all that hospitable. There was a sign right as you entered the city of Bethlehem that said, This road leads to Area A under the Palestinian Authority. The entrance for Israeli citizens is forbidden, dangerous to your lives, and is against the Israeli law. Merry Christmas. Um, This is what it looks like as you enter the city of Bethlehem. And at first, that was really jarring for me. Is that jarring for you that this is like the welcome to Bethlehem sign? It's a little jarring for us when we think about it because in our mind, the town of Bethlehem is kind of a mythical place uh, that looks like like peace and candy canes and and that kind of stuff. But in reality, Bethlehem is is a real city in a real world that has real problems. That sign is just one of the reminders of that. And when I go back and read the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 2, what I see is that Jesus was born in a town that looked more like that red sign than a town that looks like North Pole, Alaska. You see, Jesus came into a real world. And friends, this is incredibly important for us to remember. And it's incredibly encouraging for us because sometimes we're, we're tempted to think that God is only about fairy tales. And if my life has any bumps in the road or my experience has any challenges, then we begin to think, I must be doing it wrong. I must be on on the outside of what God is doing. Or even worse, maybe God is not real. But when we look at the actual Christmas story and we read at what actually transpired in history, we see that Jesus came into a real world to save real people like you and me. And so today I want us to look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, as we see Jesus' arrival and what transpired immediately after. If you've got a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat back in front of you, or maybe one on your phone you could turn to. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 2 together today. I want to read these verses for us, and then we'll back up and Look at them a little more in depth. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, says this. It says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and he departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called 
a Nazarene. Now, in these few verses today, we're going to see a couple of things about Jesus' arrival into this real world to save people like you and me. The first thing we're going to see is this. Though we may have hurt today, we have hope for tomorrow. Though we may have hurt today, we have hope for tomorrow. See, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was born and and laid in a manger, and the shepherds gathered around, and the magi came around him, and the star was in the sky, and the angels were singing, and it was this glorious moment. But very quickly after Christ was born, another reality began to emerge, and that was even though Jesus had come into the world, the world would not recognize him. The world would not understand him. This is actually what is spoken of in the Gospel of John in chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. It says, The true light, meaning Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. See, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, And angels sang, and shepherds gathered, and magi came, but most people were either indifferent or outright rejected him. The light came into the world, but the world did not recognize him. The world did not know him. Some were like the religious leaders. We saw them last week, who, when the magi showed up in Jerusalem, they were able to correctly identify that the Savior was to be born in Bethlehem, but they didn't personally go check it out. They said, yeah, the the Savior is going to be born just down the street, just five miles away from Jerusalem into Bethlehem, but they never even left. When John says that the world did not know him, some were like the religious leaders who were just indifferent to his identity, indifferent to his reality. But others were more hostile, not just indifferent, they were threatened by Christ, and they sought to wipe him off the face of the earth. These were people like Herod. Herod, as you remember, was Herod the Great, the king over this little region uh, who was inappropriately placed on that throne by, by Rome, not by birth, not by God in that regard. And yet, Herod, when he hears that Jesus is, is born, wants to kill him. He wants to wipe him out. It says in Verse 13, there's a knowledge that the, the life of Jesus was in danger. And so God lets Joseph and Mary know this in a dream that Herod is up to no good and he wants to eliminate Christ. And even though the word comes in a dream to Joseph, Herod is still in a rage and he wants to do whatever he can to kill Jesus. And so he sends his emissaries into the town of Bethlehem, verse 16 tells us, and killed all of the male children in Bethlehem and in that entire region who were two years old and under. Now the reason why he went to such drastic measures was because the events that take place in in this section were probably somewhere within two years of Jesus' birth. So Herod decides he's going to make sure that he does the job and he goes a little on the long side, and he says, any male child in that entire region, I want them dead. 
Now, when we hear that, that, that sounds awful, doesn't it? Because it is, and it was. And Herod sends there. Now, the town of Bethlehem was only a town of about 1,000 people at that time. It's estimated that maybe there were 20 male children in that city at that time who were that age. But Herod goes and wipes out nearly all of them, with one exception. God had a different plan for Jesus than to die at Herod's sword. And so we saw back in 13 that a dream comes, and Joseph is to take his family and flee down to the south to Egypt where he could find refuge. The border of Egypt was some 75 miles from the town of Bethlehem, a journey that would have taken some time and even cost some money, but with the new gifts they got from the wise men, Joseph obeys and gathers his family, maybe selling some of the gifts that he had just been given, and they take off to the south. It's about 150 miles from Bethlehem till you get to the first city in Egypt, and it's quite possible that Jesus and his family settled there for the first little bit of his life. Fugitives on the run, funded by gifts from the Magi, but now outside of the nation of Israel. That moment with those deaths and with Jesus leaving was a moment that was marked with great sadness in the city of Bethlehem and in the area around there. There was a a lot of hurt that came in that moment. This is what is spoken of in verses 17 and 18 when Matthew quotes the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, verse 15 of Jeremiah, when he says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they are no more. There would have been a lot of sadness that day, and it reminded Matthew of a scene that happened in Israel's history Uh, some hundreds of years prior when the children of Israel were carted off to captivity in Babylon. See, Jeremiah's prophecy is actually talking about an event that happened previously when Israel's best and brightest sons were were carted off to a foreign land. You might uh, remember that story as, as what happened in the book of Daniel. Remember when Daniel ended up in Babylon serving Nebuchadnezzar before he was thrown into the lion's den. Daniel got there because Judah had been conquered and and Israel had been conquered by the Babylonians and they had carted off the best and the brightest young men and left. And and what Jeremiah quotes in Jeremiah 31 is that the mothers of, of Israel stood on the roadside and wept as their children were carted off into captivity. They were wondering, will we ever see them again? And in many cases, they would not. They wept and they wept as they saw their sons leave. But even something more aggressive was at play. Not only were their mothers being separated from their children, but because these were the children of Judah, there was the possibility that the Messianic line would end. And as they saw these children carted off, they wept not only because they wouldn't see their own children anymore, but it's possible that God's promise of Messiah would end as well. There was weeping in Ramah as the children of Israel left. It's said here that Rachel is is mentioned. Rachel, of course, had died years and years before, but Rachel's tomb is near Bethlehem, and Rachel there is a symbol of all the mothers of Israel who were weeping at the deportation of their sons. 
Matthew, of course, thinks of this because as Jesus and his family head to Egypt, he pictures the the families of Israel crying once again as they see Messiah leaving. Can you imagine if you were one of the shepherds and you had, had heard the angel's declaration and you had gone to see the baby and you'd thought, alas, Messiah has finally come, only to see just a few days later he and his family running away to another country. There was weeping that day. There was hurt that day because it appeared as though the plans of God were being foiled. You know, this is a refrain in the history of of the nation of Israel that we could see play out over and over and over again. Can you imagine the, the feelings in Israel on the day that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD? Weeping in Ramah that God's plans seemed to be thwarted. Can you imagine the feelings during the time of the Holocaust? As scores of the nation of Israel were dying, there, there was weeping in Ramah, the, the mothers of the nation of Israel crying as it seems as though God's plan have, have been thwarted. And yet in every case, the hurt that is today is ultimately overcome by the hope of tomorrow. Because though Jesus left with his family and went to Egypt, guess what happened? He came back. And it's a reminder to us that even though there is hurt today, there is hope for tomorrow, and that hope comes back to us in the person of Jesus Christ. God's plans were protected as he allowed his son to go to Egypt, and then he called him back so that he could ultimately fulfill God's plan and die on the cross for our sins. And friends, we need to remember this truth today, because as we sit here today and remember the first advent of Christ, we need to remember that we have a hope for today, because right now we live in a world that is hurting. I know many of your stories, there's hurt in your hearts. There's weeping in Norman today over things that are going on in our lives, over the pain of living in this broken and fallen world. There are loved ones who have died too early. There are our family members who are estranged from us or who are estranged from the faith. There are broken dreams all around this room. And we, we gather here today and there is, there is hurt today. There is weeping in Rama today. But friends, we need to be reminded at Christmas time that though there is hurt today, there is hope tomorrow. And just as Jesus came back from Egypt, it's a reminder to us that Jesus is coming back to this earth. We have a hope for tomorrow because Christ has promised to return. And when he returns to this earth, he will set all things right. When Christ came back from Egypt, he ultimately did the miracles and he taught the sermons and he ultimately gave his life as a sacrifice. And when Christ comes back to this earth, he's ultimately going to bring in everlasting righteousness on this earth and make all things right. And those that know him, he will invite us to reign with him forever. Friends, we have a hope for tomorrow. And that hope is found in the return of Christ. See, we, we see this transpire, but we need to be reminded of that because we live in a world that is broken. We live in a world that has got terrorism. We live in a world that has got pain. We live in a world that has got persecution of Christians around the world, just like these children in Bethlehem in the first century with some of the first martyrs in the name of Christ. 
So there are martyrs in the name of Christ around the world today, and yet we need to be reminded that though there is weeping in Rama today, there is hope tomorrow, and that hope is found in Christ. You know, as we go through 2016, we are, are tempted to, to want to find our hope in things on this world. We're tempted to want to find our hope in people, and, and that ultimately is what the promise of any election is, isn't it? There's hope, and the answer to that hope is me, says whoever is running for office. But we know better. We know that the hope that we have is anchored in something far more secure than the tenuous nature of our government. It's anchored in the person of Jesus Christ. So as we continue our time of worship, I, I want you to, to, to just us to reflect on that point a little more um, with some help from Tony Evans from Dallas, Texas. There's a famous nursery rhyme that simply goes, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall, and Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Mr. Dumpty's world had become shattered, and he needed it fixed. But he didn't go to his friends or his family or even his church. He went to the White House. Now, we know he went to the White House because the king got involved. The king was sympathetic to Mr. Dumpty's dilemma, so he called a meeting of Congress. We know Congress got involved because all the king's men got involved. But the tragedy of the nursery rhyme is when it was all said and done, all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty back together again. It is unfortunate today that far too many believers are expecting the solutions to our problems to land on Air Force One. I'm taken to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua is doing reconnaissance around the walls of Jericho. He looks over and he sees the captain of another large army dressed in battle array. Now Joshua's mama didn't raise a dummy. He wanted to know whose side are you on? Because if you're on our side, then we've got help against Jericho. But if you're on their side, we've got double trouble. So before I go out here and make a fool of myself, whose side are you on? That's when the captain says to him, I think you are confused. I'm neither on your side, nor am I on their side. I'm captain of the Lord's army. I did not come to take sides. I come to take over. is God does not ride the backs of donkeys or elephants. That if you're a Democrat, the best you can do is vote Democrat light, L-I-T-E. Or Republican light, L-I-T-E, because your job is to bring the either one, the L-I-G-H-T. Your job is to represent another king in another kingdom. You do not belong to another kingdom. Let's represent the king. Friends, we have a hope in the coming of the king. Now, I would have recounted that for you, but it doesn't sound as good when I talk about Mr. Dumpty. We have hurt today, but we have hope tomorrow. Second thing that I want us to see from this passage, though, is this. It's veiled today, but 
but there's victory tomorrow. It's veiled today, but there's victory tomorrow. Now, I think this comes clear to us as the talk of Nazareth comes out. As the story continues and Jesus and his family come back from Egypt into the land of Israel, uh, their thought is to go back to Bethlehem because that's where God had directed them before. That is where they had left before. But as they're coming back to Bethlehem, another dream is, is given to Joseph and his family and tells them not to settle in Bethlehem, but instead to go and settle in Galilee in the town of Nazareth. Now, this is because though Herod had passed away, the one who wanted to take Jesus' life, his son Archelaus was still ruling over the land of Judah. When Herod died, Caesar divided up the territory and gave some of it to Herod's son Archelaus. Now, Archelaus, ruling over Judea where Bethlehem was, was an especially harsh man. We don't know that he had a particular agenda against Christ, but he was not someone that created a hospitable environment. What we know about Archelaus is that soon after he took power, he killed 3,000 people for mourning the deaths of some of those that his father Herod had killed. Archelaus was a bad guy. And so God directs Jesus to, to not, and his family to not settle in Bethlehem, but instead to go to the town of Nazareth up in Galilee. Now, that was where Mary and Joseph had grown up, but they wouldn't have thought that that's where they should go back. And the reason why they probably didn't think to go back there is because that's not where you raised a king. Nazareth was a town of little consequence. It was a town of about 500 people. And here's something interesting. It's a town that is not mentioned in Old Testament prophecy directly. So you can imagine Mary and Joseph and the prophecy about the birth in Bethlehem. They're thinking that the Messiah must be raised in Bethlehem because that is the connection to the prophecy. That's where he was born. And God went to all of this effort to get them into Bethlehem. But that's not where God wanted him to be raised. He wanted him to be raised in Nazareth. And it, and it says here that they went to Nazareth because it was something that was fulfilling a prophecy there in verse 23. Now, I just mentioned that nowhere in our Old Testament does it directly mention Nazareth as the place where Jesus was to grow up. So, in what way is Matthew's statement that Nazareth as a location of Jesus' upbringing was prophesied, and yet it's not mentioned in the Old Testament. Well, there's a couple of possibilities with this. One possibility is that there was more prophecy than what was written down. And there was oral tradition that had been passed along that possibly there was a prophet in Old Testament times that had talked about the Messiah growing up in the town of Nazareth. It's possible that that's the case. But I think it's more probable to actually see this as the fulfillment of a general condition about the raising of the Messiah and about his identity. Many times in the Old Testament, it is talked about that Jesus would be someone who would be despised and would be somewhat veiled in his glory while he was on this earth. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2 and 3, it says, For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Friends, it's possible that it was prophecy like this one that directed Jesus to be raised in Nazareth. In Nazareth, his glory could be veiled, growing up somewhat hidden in plain sight, because no one would ever expect the Messiah to be raised in a town of such little consequence. I, you think about a town of the size of 400. If you look in Oklahoma, Oklahoma is one of those places. We have a lot of towns the size of 400. One of those towns is the town of Dewar, Oklahoma. Anybody ever been to Dewar, Oklahoma? A little small place near Henrietta. I've driven through it a couple of times going to see a friend. When you're in the town of Dewar and you see that place of such little consequence and such little glory, it'd be hard to imagine a president of the United States growing up and living in that town. How much harder would it be to imagine the Savior of the world, the King of Kings, growing up in a place as inconsequential as this little town of Nazareth. And yet that is where God directed Jesus to grow up. He grew up in a place like that. He was despised, so to speak. Friends, it allowed Christ to to grow up and identify fully with our experience, not growing up in a palace, but growing up to working-class parents, experiencing the kinds of things that you and I experience. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was cold. He was tired. He knew what it meant to, to be in want, to need things. He could identify with us. And in the midst of, of that identifying with us and of that pain and of that experience, growing up in a town like Nazareth, his glory was veiled for a moment. But here's the thing. Though it was veiled for a moment, ultimately it came shining through in a glorious way when he was resurrected from the grave. And how much more so will his glory that was veiled somewhat during his life on this planet, how much more so will it be demonstrated in absolute victory on some tomorrow when he comes back to this earth? We have hope for tomorrow and we have victory tomorrow because, again, of the return of Christ. We need to be reminded of that because sometimes we can begin to discount our faith because the reality of Jesus Christ seems a little veiled in our world today, doesn't it? It seems a little veiled. It seems a little covered. Is God in charge? Well, sometimes it's hard for us to to understand that when a child dies or when a truck rams through a barricade and kills innocent people on the sidewalk or when someone serves you divorce papers or the challenges that we experience in our schools and in our life, what, it's possible that as we go through those challenges that the glory of God is veiled enough that we begin to doubt His reality. But when we look at the Christmas story and we think about how we gather around very common-looking places like this as we remember the coming of Christ, we need to remember That though he is veiled today, he is coming in victory tomorrow, and it's worth it for us to trust him in the meantime. As we gather today, we can gather around Christ. Now, I want us to to wrap up our, our time by taking us back to the Gospel of John and some of the verses that I began with. If you remember back in 
John chapter 1, 9 through 11, we talked about the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, came in the world in Christ. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And friends, there are are evidences all around us in the world today of the rejection of Christ, the misunderstanding of Christ. People who have walked away from Him. And, and maybe even this morning you are one who has closed off your heart to Him, who do not recognize Jesus as Savior. But know that John's gospel continues. He does not just talk about the world rejecting Christ, the world not understanding Him, but he continues on in verses 12 and 13 and says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Friends, if if you are here today and your heart has been closed to Christ in the past, maybe God has you here this morning that your heart would soften and that your door would open and that you would look to Jesus and recognize Him for who He is. Someone, though His glory was veiled today, is offering victory and hope for your tomorrow. And if that's the case, if if you are finding your heart leaning in, know that that is not just because it's Christmas, and that's not just because of a video or because of some words that I have shared, but that is this Holy Spirit of God that is drawing you towards the God who created you and inviting you to receive Him in faith to believe that Jesus really is the Son of God, to believe that His death on the cross really is sufficient to pay the penalty for your sin. And by believing those things and embracing those things, we go from one who has rejected Christ to one who has received Him. We go from one who is distant from God to one who is close to God. We go to one who is just gathering around Christians to somebody who is a child of God experiencing salvation today. Friends, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ, what a great opportunity to do so today. On Christmas morning, to open your heart and to prepare Him room. I'm going to pray, and after I pray, we're going to conclude our service by singing Joy to the World together. And as we sing Joy to the World together, there's a great line in that song, Let every heart... Prepare him room. And if you are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, whether that is something that has happened years ago <coughs> or that's something that is, God is stirring in your heart right now, you can sing those words with faith, opening your heart to receive the blessing of his eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you for the victory that we have in him. And thank you that we have the opportunity and the privilege of gathering today as children of yours, worshiping you. Father, we live in this world with hurt. We live in this world with pain. But, Father, we're thankful that we also have hope. And, Father, for all of the hurting hearts today, for all the tears that have been cried in 2016, Father, we turn and we look to the return of Christ as our ultimate hope. We're thankful as we gather remember the first coming of Christ, that we would also remember his second. 
and that it would give us hope and it would give us life. Father, for every heart in this room, I pray that you would have us lean in to you and to receive by faith the gift of life offered to us through Christ. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Everyone's name.